I think the value of college is going down and the cost is going up. I think that, you know, things are changing and we're really doing a disservice to all of these kids who are going through this, this whole system still, and they're coming out college prep and they're like, they know all about covalent bonds and stuff like that. They might've taken pre-calc and they don't know how to actually, you know, like make money for a company. They don't know how to make money for themselves. They really don't know like the practical ways to earn a living. And I think that's a real shame because it's, it's the opposite of what school's supposed to do. Hello and welcome back to the Hannah Franklin podcast. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Will Roosh. Will is a high school civics teacher based in LA who's been working inside of the public education system for the past 18 years. And in today's episode, we talk about how Will teaches his students the art of critical thinking and how he uses tools like the Socratic method to help them parse out and explore their own opinions and takes on some of the big cultural issues in our world. We talk about how Will thinks about leveraging the internet as a teacher and how he's thinking about building online courses as the next stage in his own career, both so that he can reach more students, but also so that he can expand beyond the confines, both academically and also financially, of the public school system. We also talk about how parents can support their own kids, both in the act of developing their critical thinking faculties, but also through asking big questions like whether or not they should go to college and how they should think about their own career development and what paths they should take. We covered a lot of ground in this episode, a lot of different points and rabbit trails of exploration, and I hope you enjoy listening. Will, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, it's nice to be here. Thanks, Anna. I'm so excited to have you. Can you really quickly, to kick off the conversation, give us like the really short version of who you are and what you do? Because your story is super interesting. We'll dig into all of it as we go. But just like the quick elevator pitch, stage setting version. Yeah, uh, thank you. I mean, essentially, it's, I was just at a party recently and they were like, what do you do for a living? It's like, essentially, I'm a high school teacher. I mean, that's what I've been. I've been a classroom high school teacher in various schools across um, Los Angeles. I did student teaching in Philadelphia, but been in the, in the classroom for 18 years. Um, about five or six years ago, I uh, expanded my classroom is the way I like to think about it to social media uh, with an Instagram account and then also a podcast to try and insert myself into these culture wars because I was covering it in my classroom anyway. And I was kind of like, all right, well, if I'm covering the classroom, maybe other people outside would be interested. And also, um, my frustrations with the education system in general, uh, I was trying to play with the idea of scaling what I do in my classroom for you know a class of 25 or 30 to a wider audience. So, so that's where I kind of find myself now. So talk a little bit about the social media side of things. I find that really interesting and that I know we're going to go deep into the weeds of teaching on the internet in this conversation, but talk to me a little bit about what you mean when you say that you moved your teaching onto social media. Yeah. So, uh, I was, I was talking in my classroom about all these culture war issues and, and then, you know, whatever it is. And I was just like having the conversations, um, in my classroom and I'd come home and tell my wife who was using social media for marketing purposes and things like that. And she's like, why don't you put these online? I felt uncomfortable, you know, talking to my phone um, for the internet. I didn't have social media or anything at the time that I was that I was on regularly or anything. So, 
I was like, all right, well, let me give it a shot. So it was basically just like the kind of the way I run my class is very like Socratic methody stuff like that. Just asking the questions, um, that, that were coming to my mind. And I was putting that online and it kind of just grew, you know, over time I would, I would tag interesting people and try and pick their brain about stuff. And sometimes they'd respond and then, um, start following and then share it. And it kind of just grew from there. But, uh, I think social media is a place where there's a lot of ugliness. There's a lot of ugliness in the way that, um, it's very anti learning, anti education. It's a lot of people who just know what they know and their personal attacks and all that kind of stuff. And I wanted to bring a little bit more, um, a little bit more like, educational value to that platform, which is not easy to do, but I've been able to do it somewhat successfully. And, uh, and so I, I, I love it. I love it as a way to connect with people, um, get people for the podcast. Uh, I think it's a great educational tool if it's used properly, it's just not used properly. So, you know, I'd rather be, you know, uh, inside, inside the walls trying to change it than, than, uh, you know, just kind of throwing stones from the outside. So, I want to dig into the social media thing for a little bit, because mm -hmm. as you yeah. know, with Rebel Educator, I spend tons of time on social media, primarily Twitter. Instagram's a newer medium for me. I've only been, I used Instagram personally, but I had no, it, it was there was no intention of growing anything. It was just, look at this cool smoothie that I made for my friends. You know, like it, it's, it's just like me personally <laughs> documenting what I'm doing for my friends and that's it. I was not trying to grow an account. I didn't want people I didn't know to see it. Um, so building an Instagram account is a much newer endeavor, but I spend a lot of time thinking about how to build conversations on the internet, especially Instagram now, because that feels like the most valuable way to build out a podcast. I'm really curious what worked for you and also what you've learned along the way as somebody who was not an Instagram native. Yeah, like um, the nice thing about not being an Instagram native, I like that, that terminology, is I don't, I don't know like the, the protocols, like the rules. Like I would talk to my students about stuff and, I, and I'd say like, oh, if this person's interesting that I find online, I'll just like uh, direct message them. They're like, Mr. Roosh, you can't just slide in the DMs like that. And it's like, well, <laughs> I, I do. What do you mean I can't? I just did it. Look, I, I do it. Like, like, no, that's not the protocol. So um, what, I've, what I have used it for in a positive way is a way to connect with people. You know, Instagram is, you know, there's, there's more visuals and stuff like that than Twitter. So you can see what they look like a little bit. I mean, people still have bot accounts or whatever, anonymous accounts, but, uh, uh, sending like a video message, like, hi, you know, introduce yourself. Um, you know, sometimes with my kid or something like that, like, you know, I'm a real person. So would you like to talk to me about this? You know, you seem to be upset about something that I posted, or I disagree with you on this thing. I'm trying to get, you know, a better understanding of it, you know, that kind of stuff. It's, it's really awesome how you can connect with so many different types of people. Like every kind of person is represented on this platform. So you can just go right at them and talk to them. Uh, so I, I found that really, really interesting just from a learning standpoint. If you're like, what would a transgender MAGA hat wearing, you know, like, um, uh, mass shooting victim think well, I had someone on my podcast who fits those, those like check boxes, you know, it's really, really fascinating that you'd be like, you know, you hold these beliefs that, uh, that I don't, I don't understand, or I don't agree with. Can you help me understand why you think what you do a little bit better? You know, and I just always tend to lean into curiosity and I try to be humble in my, in what I understand about the world. So, uh, take that approach and it's, and a lot of people don't interact with me, but some do. And then it always ends up as, you know, a fruitful conversation in one way or the other. I find the whole idea of moving education online really interesting not just leveraging it as a social platform as somebody working in the classroom which i think is also 
a conversation that needs to be had more. I think there's a lot that we're missing about being inside the age of social media uh, in as we're still, you know, working inside of physical, in-person, localized classrooms, the ability to leverage these connections as you just described through the internet. There's so much potential there that I think we don't talk about nearly enough. Like we shouldn't talk about anything else. It's so, like there's so much power there. And I wanna, I wanted to get into that with you too, but I also find, and you and I have talked about this a little bit before, the capacity to scale the reach of good ideas and good presentation and good teaching through social media is also so exciting because it completely changes the game of how students interact with educators, but also how educators can think about building out their reach and building out their the good that they're doing in the world because students are no longer limited just to the best teacher in their town or having to move to a different town to get in front of a good teacher who can answer the questions that they have about a specific topic. But teachers also are no longer limited just to being able to help the kids in their zip code if they have something of interest to say and they're saying it well and they have a microphone and they have a camera and they can allow the free market to distribute that information that they're putting out into the world based on the value and usefulness of it, they can have an enormous reach and that completely changes how they think about a career in teaching. And so I find what you're doing really interesting because I feel like you're scratching at a lot of different aspects of how the internet can be leveraged into the art of teaching. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying. Um, so there's so much to that, you know, people always say like, Oh, you know, we're moving our family to this town because their schools are ranked really high. And if you look into like how school ranking works, it's not, it's not great. It's kind of like us news and world report, like college rankings. Like there's, it's not based on like, you know, building meaningful lives for the students or anything like that. It's essentially test scores. So, you know, they're moving because parents are looking for like the best education for their kids, but they don't really know how to quantify that. So they just go to like these ranking systems. They don't know how those ranks are compiled. And then they go to like, you know, good test scores or something, but you know, like a great teacher, if you, you know, I've talked to some, you know, really interesting people, successful people, as I'm sure you have. And like, it's not the teachers who like got the best test scores out of them that really like led them down the right path. It's, it's like an intangible there. You know, how many teachers, Throughout your entire, you know, 13 years of education, of standard education, would you say are great? I mean, actually, that like, just like a, not even a rhetorical question, like what percentage of teachers that you would say you had in your schooling were like stand out, like phenomenal, great at their job and inspirational to you and others? Well, I have a weird answer to this question okay. because I was homeschooled. So my teachers were not, the teachers that I w was working with were already curated as the best, not just people that were hired by my local district. So okay. I spent all of, I got super spoiled because I spent my entire high school years watching recorded video lectures from the teaching company. So I actually spent a lot of time thinking about exactly what you just said, because I was watching, if you're not familiar with a teaching company, it, they contract like the top ranked college professor in any mm. subject area that they want to create a video series on and then they have them record lecture series on their area of expertise so if you want to learn about the tragedies and comedies of ancient greece you learn from the most highly renowned 
professor in the country in that area. And so, so you got it. So if it's five or ten percent, you got so, the five or ten percent. Yes. So I was watching these lectures from all of the best professors across the country and all of the topics that I was interested in. And that's a huge part of the reason why I didn't go to college is because I felt like I was already getting a better yeah. deal for free because you can check this stuff out of the library than I would have been getting if I had chosen one school where one of these people might have been teaching, but then I would have had, you know, whoever else the university had happened to hire. So I spent a lot of time thinking about this because I was getting such a weird parallel experience to the norm. But I, and I was very aware even in high school that I was getting really lucky for having that because all of my yeah. friends who went to public school, it was, you know, completely different world, black and white difference mm -hmm. from what they were experiencing. Yeah, I mean, we did uh, something a couple of years ago in like a professional development in the, in the beginning of the year. It said, write down your three most impactful uh, high school teachers. I couldn't name three teachers, not three impactful. Just I could, I didn't remember their names. I could remember exactly what like this one like cute girl was wearing at a specific party, but I couldn't remember. Like it was just my head wasn't there. I didn't connect with the teachers. I think that's what got me into education. Is you know like. My favorite movie is like Goodwill Hunting. He's like a really smart, you know, he's a genius. And all these movies were like, we love being, we admire being capable. We admire being smart, you know, being able to, to figure things out and stuff like that, knowing things. But the institution that's designed to get us there is just so terrible. Like it's just, it's just not enjoyable at all. So there's just, there's just a disconnect. And I didn't like school and it does, it wasn't because I was dumb necessarily. I just like, I just didn't. I was just so indifferent. I'm going to do the bare minimum to get by. And it just, there was such a disconnect between the having knowledge, which I was like, Oh, this is really cool. How do I get there? This institution. I was like, that doesn't seem to connect for me at all. So I was like, I think I can do better. So, you know, getting back to the scale issue is like, if you are a, a great, you know, the 1% of all classroom teachers around the country, what does that mean? Like, really, like, what does that mean? It just means that you still, you just have access to your four or five classes of 25 kids and that, and they just get lucky essentially to have you. And then the other kids get, you know, just a different section. They get, you know, a, a dud who's just like, oh, it's movie day again, kids. Like, how do we have technology step in to get that teacher to as many people as possible? And then if it's 1%, you still have, could have hundreds of teachers out there and then you can pick the one that fits for you. But it's, it's tricky because I think that what makes me good at my job is when I have a challenging student, I spend more time with them. I, I take them out to lunch. I sit with them during, you know, it, like uh, transition periods and stuff like that. I get to know them. That personal connection stuff is really hard because like Khan Academy or something does math lessons. But I think what makes a good teacher and what you really, what you get from your teachers is that personal connection. You're a skateboarder. Cool. Let me explain to you how I'm a physics teacher. Let me explain to you the physics all through skateboarding. You know, like, I think that that's, that's the, the challenge that I'm kind of up against is how do I take the personal relationships that I have, which has led to my success in the classroom and scale that. Cause I, I don't, I'm not really sure how to do that, but I'm sure that, that technology will, will find a way, but that's, that's essentially my conundrum. I think this is worth delving into probably at length because there's a lot here that I think is fundamental to the conversation more broadly of what should education the education of the future look like and you know if the future starts today or tomorrow or next year um 
not the long-term future, but the future as we are currently living in. Because right now we're educating kids under a model that was designed around the turn of the century that's, you know, it's preparing kids for a world that is very different from the one that we live in now. And whether or not it was a, a good and virtuous model to be putting kids through to prepare them for the 20th century is a separate debate that can also be had, yeah. but it is definitely not relevant to, to the world that kids are being prepared for now. And it's also not utilizing any of the technology and skills and advantages that we now have. Like the rest of the world has built all of these incredible advances and very little of that has been pulled down into education. I'm very open to your pushback to that statement if you feel like I am incorrect, but this is the thing I spend a lot of time thinking about because I feel like there's so much potential here in the realm of leveraging technology in education where we barely scratch the surface. No, I'm with you. I think that, you know, the the history of of the education system is it's an obedience model to make factory workers and, you know, what I always say is it, is it exchanges curiosity for compliance. And we do need people to follow rules in society, and I, I understand that, but there has to be an explanation of why and every and everything along those lines. But, like, it's moving so fast. You know, like, you can make a living, a six-figure living, commenting on video game playing now. Like, not, play, not even playing video games, but commenting on video games. Like, I think I've, I've been teaching for long enough now that enough kids have come out of high school and then gone, gone to universities, sometimes good universities, and they come out and they – they struggle with like, they don't really have any kind of useful skills. You know, something I tell my, my seniors all the time is like, you go to a job interview, essentially where you're trying to convey is I can make you money. I can make you money. Like, can you make me money? If you can make me more money, I will hire you. If you can't, then I, it's like, I have these degrees and I've got these test scores. It's like, great. Maybe that means you can make me money, but not necessarily. I think the value of college is going down and the cost is going up. I think that, you know, things are changing and we're really doing a disservice to all these kids who are going through this, this whole system still, and they're coming out college prep and they're like, they know all about covalent bonds and stuff like that. They might've taken pre-calc and they don't know how to actually, you know, like make money for a company. They don't know how to make money for themselves. They really don't know like the practical ways to earn a living. And I think that's a real shame because it's, it's the opposite of what school's supposed to do. So before I started, I got into the work that I'm doing now. When I first graduated from high school, I started working for a startup apprenticeship program that was billing itself as a college alternative. So instead of mm. going to business school, if you're interested in breaking into like the startup world, the value proposition was you come to us, we'll teach you the basic skills that you need to be successful on the job market, landing a job. And then like we'll coach and support you through like your first real startup job doing something like we specialized in everything non-technical. So we weren't working with programmers. We were working with people who wanted to get into sales and marketing and operations and customer success. And the most important element of what we were doing on a fundamental level, like we were teaching people hard skills, soft skills. We were helping them build projects and portfolios. But really what we were doing deep down was we were helping people learn how to think entrepreneurially about their value on the job market. And thinking entrepreneurially is all about thinking about your ability to solve problems and be valuable. Like if you're an entrepreneur, you're trying to figure out how can I be valuable to other people so they give me money. 
And when you're thinking about your career, that's really how you should be thinking is how can I be valuable enough to a company that they're making more money by me being there? And therefore, it makes sense for them to give some of that money back to me for my time put into being at the company. And so we were spending tons of time working with people who were fresh out of high school who just needed to have instilled into them like this is how you think about what an employer is looking for and how you get their attention and how you impress a hiring manager. And it was interesting to like in our application and interview process, we'd look for people who already had a spark of that. Because if you're like already thinking about that a little bit, like you're you're sort of predisposed to it, you're going to do much better in a program like ours was. But people, it was so, there was so many stages to the process of learning how to think this way that we had to take people through because they'd never been exposed to it before. And it's really interesting to me, like I spent years working with people who were learning how to think this way, engaging with just like the average person that you meet out in the world. No one's ever talked about how do you think opportuni opportunistically? How do you think entrepreneurially? How do you think in terms of value propositions and value adds? It's so counter to what most people learn. It's all about like, here are the paths and the check boxes that you follow. And it's all about looking for external validation, but in the form of like, what was your test score? Yep. Not, were you able to pitch that person on being able to help them solve this problem that they're running into every day at their company? And it's so strange to me how, how counterintuitive that is to most people. Like we just don't talk about it at all. And yet it's so important. Yeah. I had uh, William Dereichowitz, a Yale professor on my podcast. He wrote a book called Excellent Sheep. Excellent. It's really, really good. And it's, it's so spot on. I had I reached out to him cause I'm at this, um, this kind of elite private school now. They talk a lot about a, about a lot of culture war issues. So I had to go to the school cause they actually support it. It's a, it's a modern Orthodox Jewish school and they actually support me like talking about the, the issues that you're not allowed to talk about in public school um, or a lot of private schools in LA. Um, but anyway, so uh, I saw this where these kids are, they're sheep. They're really good at jumping through hoops and doing, you know, intellectual obstacle courses and stuff like that. They can memorize, they can, re, you know, regurgitate information and all that kind of stuff. But if you ask them to design an obstacle course, you ask them to create, they, they just don't know what to do. They just look at you with like a blank stare of that. Just like, there's nothing there. They just, they, those muscles in their brain have just atrophied that like when you were talking about the the entrepreneurial stuff, I apprenticeships, those are like gone in American society. And that's wh where they still exist. Those are the people who are successful. Those are the people that are able to build it. And I, you know, married my wife who is from like an immigrant family, they're entrepreneurial and she's like a real deal entrepreneur. And like, it's, it's, it's scary. Cause there is that element of you jump off a cliff, you got to build a hang glider or a parachute on the way down. But that, those are the people that end up being the ones who my kids and these kids in regular schools are going to end up working for as those, those people that can like create and can think outside the box and can, you know, pivot and can always add value to their customers and stuff like that. And it's just not taught at all. And it, it's, it's a real shame. And I, it, it feels like almost like like tinfoil haddish of like the people in charge are trying to just keep a bunch of workers uh, as opposed to competition. I'm not saying that's happening, but it, it just it feels that way. It's yeah. not a stretch to paint it that way mimetically at the very least. Yeah. It looks um, I also I think that there and, and I don't know if this is worth like deeply getting into because I think we're probably fairly on the same page about this. But, you know, there's 
there are lots of arguments to be made for why just learning how to memorize and not learning how to build out the structure of things to be memorized is problematic. And I think you explained that very well. But, you know, arguments aside for whether or not it was the correct way to educate kids in the 20th century, it is certainly not the right way to educate kids now because you know what machines and algorithms and AI are really good at? Memorizing things and spitting out answers. And so if you're doing things, you're only learning the skill set that we can automate, what's, what's your value anymore in the marketplace? Like the things that allow us to be creative and do things that are distinctly human and aren't just like rote things that can be replicated ad infinitum by technology for a much cheaper price point. Like that's what's going to allow you to have the wherewithal to say, to your point earlier, people really like video game review videos and I can make them and I can put them on YouTube and I can monetize them and I can make a living doing this. You're not going to see that connection from memorizing things on a test. You have to learn how to think about the world around you. Um, but I want to I want to pivot a little bit because I, I want to go back to the education on the Internet thing, because I think this is really, really important. And I'm really excited to go down this rabbit hole with you. So I'm a huge fan of the things that we're seeing in there's like we're, we're still in the very early stages, in my opinion, of seeing the like education on the Internet and what it can be. Like we're still we're still really in the early game. Yeah. Like not a ton of innovation has happened yet. We have some really cool startups that are building out uh, apps that use like different learning science research plus uh, machine learning algorithms that allow them to create automated tutors that can d- serve the same purpose as having like a full time human helping you with your math worksheets. They they're turning that they're they're automating and building into technology all of those things, which is very exciting to see happening. I think that's going to change a lot about what's possible in building out schools it already has. And then we have really, like we have people building like full on online schools, which is also very cool because then people anywhere in the world with an internet connection can access these different education models that are a fit for them that they might not even have in in their entire country. They can now access them via the internet, which is again, incredibly exciting. Uh, lots of different types of like online communities and stuff. They're allowing learners to connect with each other and learn from each other in a non-localized way. So you can just like the granularity and the level of specificity in the connections is increasing dramatically. But the thing I find really interesting that I want to talk to you about is the idea of scaling teachers and scaling the best teachers. So Khan Academy is a phenomenal example of this. Uh, for I think most people know the story at this point because it's just like sort of it's just part of the fabric of the culture. But Saul Khan was making YouTube videos for his cousins, tutoring them in math. And turns out he's really good at making tutorial videos about math. And people started watching them and they started becoming very popular. And eventually he built out an entire company around teaching not just math but also science they've got social studies now they have all kinds of stuff on Khan Academy and it's a phenomenally high quality resource that kids anywhere in the world can access to support them and like I used it when I was growing up homeschooled I used Khan Academy to help me with my math Uh, it was great 
and that ability for someone who's really gifted at teaching something to rise to a national and international level of of influence yeah. is really interesting to watch and I think I had David Perel on the podcast a couple months ago who's a teacher who's uh, he's a writing teacher he was never teaching inside the formal education system but he's built out a career teaching primarily adults, sometimes high schoolers go through his course, but mostly it's grownups, how to write on the internet. And he's built this phenomenal online course around it. And I just see so many different people experimenting with building education models that scale on the internet. And I know that this is something that you are thinking about. And I know like you already mentioned, like there are some problems to this. There are like constrictions. There are things that you don't know how to scale. But at the same time, like there are some things that people are figuring out and, and that are working. And I'm really curious how you're thinking about this and what you're seeing here. Yeah, I'm still working it out. You know, like you were mentioning about um, if you were going to the future, you know, and you were just memorizing things, um, you know, AI or whatever can memorize things better. I, I say to my students all the time, I say this, you know, publicly, is the day that I can be replaced by Google is the day that I should. Because... I don't teach my class in a way that is just like memorization. You know, Mr. Roosh, who's the, you know, whatever, like 27th president. It's like, I don't know. You don't know? No, but I can find out in 10 seconds. So it doesn't matter that I know. What I can tell you is, you know, I don't, I might not be able to tell you all the details of the War of 1812, but I can tell you how you should, you know, you can apply the lessons of the War of 1812 to your own life and your own social interactions today, and then hopefully vote in a way, maybe, or, or get involved in a way that'll prevent us from having wars that rhyme and look similar in the future. You know, like, like how do we scale this? I, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of people who are in this online education world. Um, David Prell, I listened to some of that podcast. It was great. I mean, he's really, you know, interesting and exciting. Um, my niche is high school. So like, it's like, it's like a younger thing. And, and, you know, a 16 year old does learn differently than uh, a 22 year old, you know, developmentally and stuff like that. You know, what they're focused on is a little bit different and stuff like that. So uh, that's kind of my niche. But uh, one of the ways that I, I tested this out, as I said, is through social media. And my wife was at some event or something like that. And someone saw a picture of her posted online and said, Oh, she's married to Will Roosh. And I followed him, you know, during COVID and he really helped me develop my thinking on like what was going on. So it tends to be during like weird times. So it's like the election 20 of 2020 COVID, all the George Floyd, you know, stuff that I spend time kind of working through how to think. And a lot of people, that's all, that's typically when like, you know, I get more people following or something like that. It's not, I'm not, the, the goal really isn't to get like more followers essentially. I mean, some way I suppose, but really it's just like, I'm just working on my ideas and that's what tends to be people are like, how do I make sense of what's happening? Oh, okay. I don't have the answers, but I can go through a process of thinking as I'm going through it myself, I share that process with people and that tends to resonate. So I don't know, but I, 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 I am, um, you know, in this entrepreneurial family now, marrying to my wife and my wife's family that like, how can entrepreneurial like mindset be applied to every career? I don't, I don't know, but I want to give it a shot with, with teaching, but I don't, I'm not sure exactly how to do it. So I'm, um, making some homeschool curriculum now that I'm going to try and market 
because people have asked for that. And I, I know it's been a successful class that I've taught for 18 years and developed. Um, but I'm not really sure how to, to work out all the kinks. So I'm, that's why I'm so excited to talk to you and connect with you and your audiences, um, you know, how to get this done, you know, but I, I think social media is, is one of the ways. Um, but again, that's, that's my audience is typically like 18 to 35 or something like that. It's a little bit older, but mm-hmm. that's fine. But that, that's just something that, that I've, I've been working on. I think, as you know, I'm very bullish on online education. I think mm-hmm. there's tons of potential. I think all of the problems are solvable. It might take a while to get there, but I do think it's, and some of this might be optimism born of being outside of the system. So just like my own perception of yeah. both what is necessary and also what is malleable is very different. My Overton window is shifted quite a bit from just like, the general population sense of what is and isn't possible, uh, maybe for better, maybe for worse. I don't know, but it's definitely is different. But I'm also really curious, like as you're, because you're really actively thinking through these problems. When you look at something like Khan Academy, mm-hmm. what are the things that you feel are missing, or that you want to figure out how to replicate that a model like that hasn't solved for? Okay, so um, correct me if I'm. I haven't spent much time on it. I'm a humanities teacher. So it's social studies. I've taught all the different areas of social studies, history and sociology and psychology and all that stuff. Um, But the way I see my job in the classroom is I am a translator. So I take information and then I translate it to a 16 year old who's in my, a very specific 16 year old too. So like I have a couple of like in my class of 30, I have a couple of avatars and they're like types of kids. So it's like this kind of kid, there's that kind of kid, there's that kind of kid. And I kind of talk directly to this is the information. Here's why it will benefit you to know this. And I mean, I, I challenge all of my students every day to ask that question. Their teachers, some of my colleagues don't like me because of it. Cause they'll say like, why are we learning pre-calc? Like, how will this benefit me in my life? And a lot of teachers don't like that question. Like they just, they just balk at the question. They just like, you need it for college or you need it to, to get through my class. So you can have it. Like there really aren't good answers. And so I don't know if Khan Academy, it might be like, how do I figure out how to do the quadratic formula or something? But like, how does the quadratic formula, knowing that going to benefit me in a real quantifiable, you know, grabbable way for the today, tomorrow, 10 years, 50 years from now? I don't know if it, if it, if it answers that, does it? It's an interesting question. I don't know if I have a concrete answer to that. I need to think about this. I don't want to just like spitball. I feel like any answer okay. I give you would be knee jerk. And I don't, I don't know if I feel comfortable putting that in a recording that I'm held to <laughs> not even that I'm held to, but that like, yeah. but you know, definitively... you know what I'm saying? because, yeah. because the kids, the kids will, they'll show me like math problems. Sometimes they'll be like, you, you have to fence a yard with this many. It's, these are the dimensions of the yard, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, look, you buy extra fence. And when you're done with it, you can return it to Home Depot. You know, and, and like, and like, and the kids are like, yeah, like, I mean, I'm not saying it's bad. Like there's engineers. I'm glad that the people at SpaceX and the people who are designing my car, uh, you know, do math and, and do, are good at it. Like I'm not minimizing difficult math, but there are these engineering kids that just like are really interested in building rockets. That is an easy, oh, well, here's why you have to learn calculus or whatever it is. But that's not every kid, but every kid has to take these math classes. Every kid has to learn chemistry. And how do you get through to the kids that don't want to learn chemistry? Because 
maybe they'd be great at chemistry. Maybe they would love it. They just need to be told, you know, all of the applications and fit one of those applications into their interest areas. And if you can do that, then they can become a chemist. I mean, I heard Eric Weinstein talk to, uh, uh, um, I think it was Sam Harris, and they were just talking about how they're both terrible at math when they were young, and like not terrible, but like just uninterested or something like that. And it was like, like that's crazy. That's crazy. He's like super geniuses, like weren't doing well in school, so they just needed someone to explain it to them properly. And I think there's a lot of untapped potential out in the world because the kids aren't. They don't have a translator saying, here's how you can apply chemistry. Or here's how you can apply math on Khan Academy. From my understanding, it was more just like doing the math, how to do the math as opposed to uh, the application element of it. I do think the, the element that I think is hardest to scale, which you've, you've, already, you've already said this, but the element that's hardest to scale... And the element that's hardest to to replace with technology is the coaching side of like to what you just described. When all of the technology is there to actually walk the kids through the mechanical process of learning something, presenting them with materials, walking them through practice, quizzing them, assessing their, like how much they've retained and where their weaknesses are, and then, you know, creating a curriculum that shores up those gaps. Like the mechanical scientific process of how you as assimilate new information into your working toolkit. That stuff, like we're already solving the problem of how to scale that. The thing that's harder to scale is the person sitting there with you saying, I see you, I hear you. I understand what you're working on, why you care about it, why you're not interested in this other thing over here. Here are the potential paths that are available to you. Here are the potential things that, you know, you might want to carry this passion forward into doing. And or maybe, like you know, you're saying this is your stated goal, like you want to be a rocket scientist. Here's why you actually have to learn this math stuff in order to do that and helping with the context building. And I think the the ways that we have to do that in a skilled sense now are very clumsy. Yeah. Like you can go listen to a bunch of podcast interviews from people that you admire and like kind of get some perspective along the way, but that's not efficient. And I do think like there are schools that are being built with what I just described as sort of like they're the one of the core nodes around which everything else is being built. So like there's a school here in Austin called Alpha School that where the kids they don't have teachers. So the kids learn all of their academic subjects through apps. And then they have what they call guides who are effectively coaches who are in the school, who are there to work with the kids and like coach them through the process of figuring out how they're using the apps and what their other projects they're working on and what their long-term goals are. And as those are evolving, how the things that they're doing in the apps reflect back or connect back to what they're doing in the real world. And so I think, I do think that coaching component is really important. And to your point earlier, like I'm... I don't know if I'm the best person to ask about, like, are these subjects, is it okay to not learn some of this stuff? Because I tend to be very liberal about it. I'm like, yeah. if you don't want to do it, don't do it. Like, you have the internet. Like, you can, go, you can go learn algebra when you're 30 if you decide you have an application for it. And you'll probably learn it way more effectively and have more fun because you're not going to be fighting it the entire time. So if like, you don't want to do it, don't do it. Um, and I do think that there's more nuance to that line probably in reality than my personal stance on it. But I also think that there are interesting um, 
case studies for this too. Did you ever hear the story of Cole Summers, the kid in Utah who wrote a book? Okay. Uh, Cole Summers, you, you need to read this book. It's called Don't Tell Me I Can't. Cole was, it's Cole Summers was his pen name. His real name was actually Kevin Cooper. Uh, he was 14 years old and he owned a ranch in uh, Southwest Utah. He uh, had bought and financed his own tractor to like do like land development on his ranch. Uh, he had bought and flipped a house, which is how he financed the ranch. Uh, and he wrote an autobiography about his education experience. Both of his parents were disabled. His older brother was disabled. He was kind of like the, the, he was like at 14, he was the person who was kind of like, you know, driving a lot of what the family was doing. He was completely unschooled and, uh, he was, wildly successful in ways that you are not supposed to be able to be successful when yeah. you're 14, uh, let alone a 14 year old who's never been to real school. Yeah. And there's a, a section in his book where he talked about how he was working with an electrician when he was working on renovating this house that he'd purchased before he resold it. And he made a shot uh, like a list of I think a shopping list or maybe a to-do list I can't remember some type of list that he gave the electrician and it was all of it was spelled phonetically and the electrician was like you really need to learn how to spell and Kevin was like that's a waste of my time like why should I do that and the electrician's like well because you need to and Kevin goes could you read everything that was on the list and the electrician goes yes it's not right, but I knew what you meant. And Kevin's like, okay, so why should I learn how to spell? And I feel like those arguments, like sometimes they hold water. I don't know. I'm curious. Yeah. I would be curious to hear your response to that. If a student came to you and said like, why should I learn how to spell if you can figure out what my list says? Yeah, that's, a, I mean, it's tricky because I think that you will get closed off to certain rooms and certain situations. If you don't have that kind of policy. Like you do have to play the game to some degree. How much of the game do you have to play? I don't know. But I think that um, you have to play some of the game, you know, like would, could you be successful and be illiterate? Yeah. I mean, I you know, Floyd Mayweather is essentially illiterate. I think like you can, but it might serve you more. You, you, you probably are, you know, shackled a bit and you don't have, you know, certain skills. And it sounds like this, this guy sounds like a genius. So like he probably could learn it pretty quickly and it might, that juice might be worth the squeeze. And I think I would just not tell them that you have to learn it, but just like walk them through this process. What doors are closed to you by not knowing, you know, essentially how to read and what doors would be open if you did, how long would it take you to do this? And then is that juice worth the squeeze and have them kind of come to it on their own? That's the tends to be the, my more of like my style. Um, but you know, I've, I've put in my 10,000 hours, my Malcolm Gladwell, you know, I've mastered what, um, being in the classroom and what that does is I've been around teenagers for 18 years and then plus student teaching for two years. So, I mean, essentially two decades and it's like very diverse. I was at one of the worst neighborhoods in Los Angeles. And then I've been in like a very middle-class neighborhood and then I, I'm at, you know, a more wealthy neighborhood, um, now, but I know the teenage avatars, like I kind of, they're, you start seeing like, oh, it's like a, like a type of kid. They're individuals for sure. But like I am too. Like we're all like these like types. That's why they have all these personality tests. Like, you know, whatever, like the, the Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram or whatever. Like you start to see these patterns. So um, uh, in doing that, 
that's why like it's a tricky thing i'm with you it's a tricky thing to try and scale uh the coaching element or that element but because i know that i can kind of find the way to hit most students so like all kids this is like kids who were living in cars that i taught and kids who are like you know like in movie like movie star kids that i've taught they all have tensions with their parents they have um uh, insecurities around like, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're, whoever they're attracted to. Uh, they have insecurities about like their body images and stuff like that. They go through um, conflicts with their friends. You know, they don't want to be a loser. Like there's whatever definition that is. So there's these things that I can hit. So in scaling, I can attack those elements. Like in my U.S. history curriculum, it's a lot of like, this is kind of like when you're trying to extend your curfew. Or this is kind of like when you're trying to impress, you know, a cute boy or a pretty girl in your class. And that's something that you can address at scale, but you have to know like teenage minds pretty well. And that's just what, what I've been doing from all of my adult life essentially is, is getting like a pattern for what all teenagers kind of resonate with. And that's, I think what makes me like, a, like perhaps a little bit like um, better equipped to scale that element of it. But I'm still not saying that I have it, but I think that's that's just why I'm I'm leaning towards that element and going online is like, huh, I put in my 10,000 hours, so like I don't want to waste that. What does that give me that other people who are trying to scale education don't? And that can be like more of like my angle. And I think there's plenty of room for all, all different kinds. But people who are looking for that, that might be more of like my lane. Today's episode is brought to you by the John Galt Mortgage Company. I promised myself when I started the show that I was never going to have a sponsor unless I could truly endorse what they are doing. And that could not be more true for the John Galt Mortgage Company. My friends, Mitch and Tim, started the company earlier this year after working in the real estate world for years and realizing that mortgages are way more expensive than they need to be. Most real estate agents don't actually know how much extra profit is baked into the cost of a mortgage. So Mitch and Tim started a new kind of mortgage one where they cap their own profits on every transaction and pass the savings along to you, the buyer, in the form of a lower interest rate. If you are in the market for a house, I absolutely recommend checking out what Mitch and Tim are doing. You can find more at www.johngaltmortgage.com or you can find the link below in the show notes. Okay, back to the show. This may be far too big of a question for you to answer. Um, but if you can summarize, how do you feel like some of the ways that you approach working with your students has changed as you've accumulated these 10,000 hours, as you've learned more about the psychology of high schoolers? What are some of the most important things that you've learned that you now put into practice and how you engage with them and support them? Um, I just, I get it quicker. My wife did a, like a, a a conversation, a public conversation with Gary Vaynerchuk, who's like, you know, a big like entrepreneur, you know, person on social media. And when she was like talking about some of her issues with like her team and stuff, like within like, I mean, six seconds of the question, like five words, words in, he's like, yeah, I got it. So it, it's, it's, I, I know like the, this kid wants to talk about, you know, uh, this way that their best friend stabbed him in the back. And I let them talk because a lot of it is just like trying to, you know, get it, get it out there and purge themselves of it and have so, you know, an ear to listen to them. But I got it real quick. Like, I, I just, I know where this is going. I know what it is, you know, like, 
Mean Girls is that a pretty accurate movie. Um, there's, you know, there's a lot of elements of that that like that like hold up. Um, so I see kind of where it's going. The same, as I said, the same kind of things are coming up. The same kinds of insecurities and stuff. So I just get it quicker. And through like trial and error of like, hey, try this. Does this work? And then kids being like, wow, that really helped. Like, okay, remember that. And then I can I can get to the better solutions quicker and quicker and quicker. People are finishing, you know, trying to figure out what they want to do for a career. I've gotten that like streamlined down. So it's just, it's more efficient. And that's why I feel confident finally now to be like, it's efficient enough and it's condensed enough and succinct enough that maybe I can do it at scale in a way that's not as long form. It took me, you know, a while. It took me five minutes before, and now I can get it done in like 30 seconds. I get right to the the core of it. How often, I don't know how often you talk to parents who, especially through social, social media, who are either actively homeschooling or they're thinking about pulling their kids out. I imagine because of mm -hmm. the things you talk about, you hear from a lot of parents who are yeah. dissatisfied with the status quo system. If you get questions from them about how they like how they can best support their high schoolers, um, do you have advice that you tend to give parents on how to better engage with either the questions that their kids are asking or like challenging them in in constructive ways? I know it's a little different the dynamic of a parent versus a teacher. It might be harder, um, but do you have advice that you give parents? I do. I mean, I think it would have to be, it's like specific though. Like, you know, um, I don't like, um, I don't like my kid doesn't like reading, you know? So, so it's like, um, I, I typically say something along the lines of, um, get them to read things they love until they love to read, you know? So it doesn't matter. It could be Guinness book of world records, you know, just something, you know, whatever it is, just get them reading, get them in the process of reading. People don't like tend to not like doing things that they're bad at. And if you don't read a lot, then you're not going to be good at reading. So you don't want to read because you're, you're going slow and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's, it's, it's actually difficult to sit and read a book um, for a lot of, I mean, even adults now. Uh, so, so there's like those kinds of things that I, I kind of walk them through, you know, advising them to, you know, sit down and spend time reading with them. Um, uh, you know, there's whatever like the, the situation is, that's just one, but like whatever the situation is, I tend to have, um, yeah, like, like just like my go-tos that tend to work. And then there's a back and forth. Well, I tried that. That didn't work. Well, why didn't it work? What about this, that, that kind of stuff. What about you talked earlier about using the Socratic method in your mm -hmm. classroom? Can you walk us through that? I had somebody on the show a couple months ago, his name's Michael Strong, and he runs a school called the Socratic Experience. It's an online school that's completely built around the Socratic method. So I've talked about this a little bit on the show before, but never in the context of a public school classroom. And so I'd love, if you're open to it, I'd love for you to like walk us through what the Socratic method looks like inside of the context of classroom teaching. Because I think the it's such an interesting way of conveying information and, and engaging kids intellectually, but it's often like, it's not necessarily intuitive because a lot of people don't do it. So we haven't necessarily been exposed to it enough to know how to replicate it. Yeah. So, um, essentially, you know, series of different questions that you have and like, I don't know if I even follow it. Like sometimes I, I have, you know, I have like the specific like process, like the official process, but I don't, I tend to just naturally be very curious, uh, 
when I moved to the school I'm at now, everyone there has a PhD. Everyone's like very well respected and, you know, in their specific fields and all that kind of stuff. And I just have like a state degree, you know, a degree from like a state school in Pennsylvania. And I felt very intimidated. Some of the students were really, really smart. You know, and I was coming from a school where the kids didn't know how to read an analog clock or didn't know who Abraham Lincoln was. So I went like in the kind of the other direction. And uh, and so I just leaned into curiosity. I said, curiosity makes you smart because I'm paying attention to I just ask a lot of questions then I pay attention to the answers. So I teach a civics class my favorite class to teach my senior level civics class. And uh, and if a kid has like a strong conviction on a political topic it doesn't really matter what it is, you know, um, open borders, closed borders, you know, pro-life, pro-choice, whatever it is, is I just tend to ask them questions. They're really certain that they're, they have the right question. And it's a controversial issue where the country split 50, 50 is just asking them questions about, about, I'm trying to get to, you know, kind of where they draw their lines. A lot of times I think on political issues is it's like, where do you draw your lines? So, no, abortion's like the, one of the most politicized ones, right? Or contentious and hard and emotional, um, pinning liberty against life and all that stuff. So, you know, at what point would you say that it's it's acceptable? And what point would you say that it's not? You know, and where do you draw those lines? And that just goes to a series of questions. So I have my students ask each other questions. Um, and then they decide like, okay, well, here's where my line is between being moral and immoral or where it's okay and it's not or whatever, you know, the framing is. And then once you know where the other person stands and where their line is, then you can just ask them like, well, why do you have your line there and not there? And then you get a better understanding as opposed to like, I'm on this side of the binary. I'm on this side of the binary. It's like, well, we're too far away now. We're actually going to agree on a whole lot of things. Sometimes their lines are just are very close. You agree that that's crazy over here. You agree that that's crazy over here. And then you can, you can agree on the trunk of the tree and not the branches. But just leaning into, you know, the, you know asking questions like, um, in what kind of situation, uh, could this maybe be different? There's a great, uh, series of, uh, there's a great short book by Peter Bogosian and James Lindsay called how to have impossible conversations. Really good. It's a, a very simple guide. They said, they you know, and I use that kind of stuff in my class, you know, hypotheticals. Uh, is there anything that could change your mind? Hypothetically, is there any evidence or data I could show you to change your mind on this topic? And if they say no, then it's not a, a reason-based, a logic-based, an evidence-based position, which is fine. You know, like I'm a person of faith. Like I get it. Like there's like, like there's like faith, faithful answers, but people have faith on it when it comes to political issues and stuff like that. But, it, and if there's no evidence that I can show you, then why would I waste my time trying to gather all kinds of evidence to show you just told me that it wouldn't happen. So, okay, well now it's a faith-based argument or it's just a gut, you know, your gut feeling-based argument that or position that you have. Okay. Well, then, then where do we go from here? What if, what if your gut and my gut are different? Then how we interact in a society and what happens there? Where I take like the extremes, you know, what, what would Hitler's gut, because that's an easy go-to as like the bad guy, what, would, what did his gut tell him? You know, did his gut tell him that he was a bad guy when everywhere he went in Germany was just smiling, um, you, know, you know, crying, weeping, just thankful faces everywhere he went were just like, you're, you're amazing, you're the best. Like, did his gut say like, you're actually gonna be recognized throughout history as the worst human being ever? You know, like in what ways can your gut steer you wrong? You know, there's a whole bunch of different pathways to go down. So, um, so I, I love, I love doing, doing that kind of, you know, thoughts with, I, I want the kids to just, I just want to spark thought. That's a Socratic, that's a Socrates quote. It's like, I can't teach anybody anything. I just can spark thought. And I just want the kids to just use their brains to challenge themselves a little bit and just, just think, you know, it's, it sounds really simple, but it's, it's actually something that 
that a lot of kids are not. They're just they're just sheep going through the the obstacle course. They're not actually thinking about why they're running the obstacle course or what's going on. And that goes all the way up through their career a lot of times. And and then it happens in society, and you see society being falling apart in certain directions or, 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 uh, or in certain areas. And then you see institutions failing. And I think that there's just a lot of people who just aren't thinking. And then they just go, well, I was told by this person, you know, I mean, that happened during COVID Hannah. Like I, I just tell a quick story. Like I, I was at, I was at the mall and, um, and I was we were in California, so we had to wear masks like up until, you know, whatever, like the last week. And, uh, and I was at like, a. uh, uh, bath and body work, something. I wanted to get a scented candle for my wife. So I pulled down my mask to smell the scented candle and someone's right there like, hey, put up your mask. I was like, well, I'm just pulling it down to smell the candle. Can I do that? She's like, no. It's like, I can't, I have to buy a candle, like a scented candle without smelling it. She's like, yeah. I was like, can I just, why? She's like, well, my manager. I was like, let me talk to the manager. I was the, let me talk to the manager lady. And then um, the manager came out. I was like, I can't pull down my mask to, to, to smell a candle. Why? She's like, well, because my, you know, the mall manager will get on us for it. So they went, you go to the mall manager. The mall manager is like, well, because the safety inspector. And then you go to safety inspector. The safety inspector is like, because of the governor. And the governor is like, because, uh, uh, you know, and then the governor is like, I don't know why, because of this scientist. You know what I mean? Like, and you realize that when you are in this compliance model and it's this obedience model of school that you get up and the superintendent actually doesn't know what they're doing. And yet it's just this, this top-down approach, then it, we become like a mess. And that's what, I, what, I, what I've been seeing a lot in society. And so I think when I say like, I want to just challenge kids to think, the Socratic method just gets you to, to think. People don't like that. They killed Socrates for corrupting the youth, <laughs> corrupting the youth and asking questions. So people don't respond to it very, very well. Um, and I, and, and, but I don't, I don't care. I mean, I think that's what education is. I see this weird dichotomy exist between this because this is one of the things that comes up the most on the internet around education is people get really spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about we have to teach kids how to think critical thinking mm. is one of the biggest buzzwords and so there's this yeah. weird split between all of the people who really want kids to learn how to think and then a system that doesn't encourage it at all or at least that's that's the narrative that is painted on the internet. And so it's just weird to me how distinctly opposed these two sides of the conversation are. And I would love to hear your thoughts about this because you're like right in the heart of it. You're inside of the system and you're trying to do the thing. What do you see? Um, we, yeah, we're told in like education colleges, be a lifelong learner, promote lifelong learning and critical thinking. It's not happening. It's It's just not. Um, I know, you know, you know, Drew Perkins, um, you know, like, uh, he, he's, he does a lot of stuff like in education space about critical thinking and stuff like that. But like, it's, I, I, I had like a, an Instagram live conversation with three, uh, critical race theory teachers go kind of go viral. I don't know if you saw it. <laughs> it's wild. Um, I was just asking questions, just asking questions, um, and wouldn't just like comply. And they, they got so angry with me for asking questions. And it's like, if I have questions, like, what do you think a 10th grader is going to do? And that's what happens is kids are going to ask questions. Like, why should I learn this? And they're told, shut up and learn it. Essentially, it might be a nice way, but essentially because you 
need to. What do you mean? Why do you need to? It's kind of like, you know, why do you like, like the story of, uh, of, of, of that kid? Like, you know, why do I need to learn how to read? It's like, that's a valid question. Like you need to actually address that question. Like, and I told you how I would deal with something like that. Cause you have to have them actually process it, but they're not told that. So Teachers on a whole bunch of issues are just certain. And I, it might be an ego thing. Like I'm in front of the classroom. I'm the sage on the stage. I know better. I never think that I, I, I am like infallible or have the answers. I have a process that I'm going to bring you on. And I welcome challenges because it helps me work it out. Like we're in this together. My students and I, we're in this together trying to like figure things out. I know more than you probably, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to close my mind to like your perspectives and students all the time bring up um, perspectives and ideas or read books that like I didn't, I wasn't aware of. It's really, really useful, but it just doesn't happen in schools. And you know, there's a lack of curiosity. I think there's a lot of, um, I think part of what it is, and it's teachers are like, we're like a soft hearted lot. Like we're like soft hearted people. So we tend to vote that way. And it's like, it's just all like, it's just soft and it's so mushy that there's no real like concrete thing. When you start asking, you know, why do you think this or why they're just, cause it, they feel it. They just, they just feel it. And that's, that's not sufficient um, to, you know, it's, it's great. It's great when a kid's really sad and you can give them a hug and stuff like that. And that's, that's like real. I'm not even minimizing that, but when it comes to getting people to be critical thinkers, teachers just aren't, and they're just so overrun by their emotions. So we're going to talk about like, talk about like gun policy with a, with a K through 12 public school teacher, like go give it a shot. Like it's really, really hard because it's like, but children are dying. Like they can't see through like that emotional cloudiness because they're so soft because they just want to spend time, you know, with, with, with children helping children. And they don't make the connection between helping children as helping them to actually process and learn and do that kind of stuff. Those things seem to be, you know, kind of like left brain, right brain kind of opposing in some way. So if teachers are being taught in school to teach kids how to think and to support them in being lifelong learners, and it's not happening in the classroom, you see the the primary reason why is just the actual disposition of the teachers themselves? Or are there also systemic things that make it disincentivized or deprioritized or hard to do? Like, do you get any pushback for building your class around critical thinking? Or is it fairly easy to do if the teacher wants to? Um, I don't get pushback where I'm at, but I'm in a unique teaching situation. Um, I got to be clear, like the colleges of education, they say be a lifelong learner. They say critical thinking. They don't actually do it. I mean, a lot of them, from my understanding, I've been on a, on a, on a, um, in an education college for a while, but like from my understanding, talking to people who are fresh out, it's not, it's very politicized. You know, I mean, that is, that is real. And, um, there are definitely like what's happening in Florida is, is also real as far as like, I just talked to um, some teachers. I was at a fellowship in Austin um, last weekend. Uh, There's some teachers in Florida who are talking about how they can't teach Romeo and Juliet because it's like on the banned book list. Like that's like, it's not just left-wing, but it's a lot of left-wing stuff. And it's a lot in, at the universe, at the college uh, colleges of education. So, so you challenge the people's politics. They, it's like, it's, especially if they're part of their identity, they, Balk at that so hard because it's like you're challenging their idea. You're threatening the sense, their sense of self. Um, so they say be a lifelong learner. They say critical thinking. They say it. And that's what, and that, that conversation that I was talking about that went viral. I mean, they said all the things. You know, we love civil discourse. 
until you don't comply, you don't agree with them. And then it got very, very contentious. Uh, so I think that it's, e it's easier said than done. Like challenger thinking is easier. It's very easy to say, you know, all the stuff that like that you're the, of like the Socratic method and questioning yourself and everything and representing steel man arguments for the positions that you don't hold. It's easy to say. It's very difficult to do because so much of our sense of self is wrapped up in these, in these stances that we have, you know, we are these beliefs. And so if you challenge those, then you're like challenging your sense of self. And I think that's really hard for people. I don't think it's something that people just naturally jump into. I think they have to learn through that process. And I don't think that's done nearly enough um, in the colleges of education. So when you say that you're in a unique teaching position, yeah. so you don't get as much pushback to teaching kids critical thinking, are do you see other teachers who are trying to expose their kids to rigorous thinking inside of the classroom who do have more of a problem? Like you alluded to banned mm -hmm. book lists and stuff like that. Can you talk a little bit more about what some of the challenges are that teachers are running into? Yeah. So um, the fellowship I was at was through um, uh, University of Austin, and there were teachers from all over the country in Canada. And they were talking about how like there's, you know, at their school, like they just can't um, sometimes with like the gender thing, like you just can't question. These are their pronouns. You can't question them. You can't ask them like why or how, or when did you think about this kind of stuff? Or like, you know, are you, you know, like, um, what could maybe change your mind or anything like there's just, there's, you know, or what, what led you to this or, or no, anything like that. You just have to accept it. So I think it's a common thing. Um, around schools. And I do have a lot of teachers and a lot of parents reach out to me. Um, uh, another wonderful use for social media is, is like I said, connection and people like feel, you know, really, you know, um, stuck in these, in these situations. And they, uh, and they reach out to me and they tell me about like the stuff that's pushed on their kid, you know, these books and, and things like that, that pushes these like political stances and these ideologies. And when their kid, you know, questions things back, I, you know, I've had several kids tell me, because like the English department tends to be more maybe left-leaning than let's say the STEM departments or something. So I've had students say like, and look, perception is reality to some degree, especially for a teenager. And they said, you know, if I do a poorly written paper that, uh, that criticizes Trump, I will get a better grade than a well-written paper that praises Trump. And you know, so it's the, so that's just, that's like, and that they really believe that. And it's several kids over several years have kind of told me this because Trump's been in like the, you know, the perspective, <laughs> the, 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 um, <laughs> the paradigm of America for a long time. But, but, uh, that's, that's a problem. And I think that the teachers, I don't even know if they're aware of that, but I think that I've heard teachers say things like, you know, we need to teach kids morality. I've heard, and it's like, hold on, whoa. Like morality is complex. Like, you know, I love the righteous mind, John Hyatt's book. It's fantastic. But like he goes into it. It's really, really complex morality. We're going to teach kids morality. Who's morals? Exactly. You know, like, like according to what standard and stuff like that. And I think that what you have is teachers who are like, no, these kids are, are immoral. They need to learn morals and they don't actually know the process of learning morality. And that's something that's super interesting to me. I love learning about morality through a philosophical lens, secular lens, religious lenses. I love learning about that. Cause I think that, uh, I think it's a dangerous approach to say, I need to teach these kids morality. I think more of what it is is you need to question them on why they take the moral stances that they do. But I, the idea of like, we need to teach these kids morality is terrifying to me, honestly. You, 
so I imagine we talked about this earlier, like getting questions from parents. Mm -hmm. If a parent reached out to you and said, Hey, I, my kid's not running into any particular problems or anything. I just want to make sure that I'm doing a really good job facilitating their development as a thinker with the types of conversations that we're having inside of the home, the way that I'm modeling thinking for them is the advice that you'd give them akin to what you just described doing with the kids is just asking lots of questions about how did you get there and why do you think that and what might change your mind or are there other specific things that parents should also think about doing to support this development in their kids um yes but so yes it's just keep asking them questions and just you know get more and more specific and the kids they're not gonna know and that's cool and that like encourage them to like wrestle with like oh yeah, it's not knowing so let's like do you just keep asking questions and kind of get them to figure them that learning process is so cool i did it with my nine-year-old last night he was going through something with like a, a kind of like a bully at school and just like getting him to like vocalize and talk his way through it was so cool and so beneficial um but uh but also there's um like so uh so what was the, what was the question it was like what are, what other things other than just asking questions yeah are there other things yeah so i guess i guess again it would come down to something specific so you know i, I heard this thing of uh if your child you know is really great at horseback riding and loves horseback riding and really terrible at math and hates math you get them a horseback riding coach not a math tutor i don't know if that's right or not but I do think that there's tremendous value. This is this is something I came up with. Curious your thoughts on this, Hannah. Is uh, because I teach 11th and 12th grade typically, uh, and so as kids thinking about their futures, they tend to just think about college. They think college is a destination. I'm like, no, college is a vehicle. Like I say, should I walk, take a car, or fly? And then they're like, uh, I don't know. It depends on where you're going. I'm like, right. Yeah. It depends on where you're going. If you're going to Starbucks down the street, then flying doesn't make sense. So when you're saying like, I want to go to college, it's like, why specifically? Like, like, are you sure you need college? College is a vehicle. It's not a destination. Um, but, but, um, along those lines is, uh, my best career advice, I think is find the grind you love, find the thing you love working hard at. And I think that's a great, tool for parents too is like find the thing that your child loves working hard at what's told a lot of times for career advice is um pursue your passions but that doesn't work like i like sitting by the pool drinking margaritas like i, I that's i'm passionate about that that's not really a career like you're getting like party planning i guess or something stretch like a stretch like that or you just make a lot of money and then hopefully retire i don't like that or it's the um the mike Rowe thing of turn your career into your passion. So if you, if you're cleaning toilets, you turn that into building a toilet cleaning empire. It's like, well, no, cause cleaning toilets sucks. I've done it. So, uh, instead it's find the grind you love. And I have a, a friend who's a, a CPA and she like loves going through tax code and finding like a half a percent to save people. Like that's, that's like a punishment for shoplifting for me. Like, I don't know. I don't get it at all, but she like loves it. Some people love just like coding. Some people love my, my, um, nine-year-old loves like putting together really detailed 3d puzzles and stuff like that. Like I, I just, I hate that. He loves just like loves it. He's obsessed with like Rubik's cubes. Like that's hard and he loves it. So like we're leaning into that stuff. So I think that's a big one for parents is help your child to find the grind, the hard work that they love doing, because that 
is going to lead them to tremendous success, I think. I think that if you're up against someone who's doing it, who's coding to make a paycheck, and you're coding because you just love coding, I think you're going to beat them all day, every day, because you're you're just like throwing another pot of coffee where just they're just dragging like don't, they don't want to. That's how it was with education. I know a lot of teachers that are like, they're doing it for summer breaks. They can't wait till summer countdown and stuff. It's like, no, I... I love writing lesson plans. I love this stuff. I have a lunch meeting with a different student every single day. I love the job. And I think that's part of what got me to, to the success that I've had. So that's another thing that I like to, to tell parents. What do, you, what, what do you think about that? I think, I think your assessment of, of college is very accurate. Um, I think that's a really helpful. I think that's a great distillation of the mental models that you have to be approaching it with to make a decision. Um, and I think, I think that's good career advice too. Cause I think I also really bulk at the find your passion and just do that thing because it also puts so much pressure on kids to know what their passions are. Um, like there is so much that I've discovered I've really loved doing in the almost decade now that I've been out of high school that mm-hmm. I didn't know when I was 17, 18, trying to figure it out. I had no clue. And if I had been forced to declare my passion at 18 and say, okay, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, I would be stuck doing something that I probably don't enjoy at this point in my life because I've discovered other things that I like better and other skills that I have. And so I think a lot of it, I think we put so much pressure on our kids to know what they want to do as adults when they're teenagers and I think that's ridiculous. And I think so much of how, like just the language we use around talking to kids, like find your passion and change the world. Like here's a five-step quiz that you can take to figure out what your passion is. Like, I don't, I don't think that level of pressure is fair. And I think it detracts from a lot of the magic that happens in the emergence of a career path over time, like the best career paths are ones that can't be predicted because opportunity happens and personal development happens and self-knowledge is attained and the path evolves over time. And I think we should be teaching kids more about that, like more because when you're a kid, you have no concept of continuity. Like all you know is now, like you haven't, you haven't seen things like age and die yet. You've only seen like new things come in and grow, but you have no sense of like where they're growing to. And like the through lines between beginning and end, like you have no perspective for that yet. So helping kids, like if education is about helping like fill gaps that you have not yet filled just through personal experience and learning from other people, then that feels like one of the most important things to me to be exposing kids to is look at all of these different paths that people have walked and here are the things that are noteworthy about them as someone who has like seen things evolved over time. Like these are the inflection points and the things that are non-obvious that happened down the road that you wouldn't have been able to predict when this person was 18. I think just like loosening kids up to being like perceptive and receptive to that is really important. And I don't think most of our cultural narratives do that very well. Yeah, I'm with you. I think there's a structure though, like underneath there's like, there's like an undergirding to like whatever your passion is that I want to get to. Cause your, your passion might be like, you know, maybe it's like performing. So I like singing or something like that. It's like, well, singing hard for you. It's like, no, I love it. Then like, well, it's, so there's, what is it? What is it really? 
Like there's something to that. So maybe it's it's some sort of performance. Maybe it's some sort of expression. Like when kids say they want to be like an actor. I'm in LA. So like kids want to be an actor. It's like, do you want to be like a movie star? Do you want attention or do you want to act? Do you want to express yourself? Like what is it really, what is it at the core that's like difficult? Do you, do you like the attention or do you like the um, getting into a character and pretending you're someone else? Like, do you like the camaraderie around the theater group? Like, what is it? And then, then they have to think about this because they, they don't. They just say, you know, here's, I want to be an actor. And people go, okay, great. But it's like, let's get down to the really at the core of what it is. Because, you know, a kid who wants to be, a, who loves baseball, like the chance that he'll be a professional baseball player is almost nothing. So like, what is it really about baseball? Like, it's not just baseball, right? No, it's, it's, the, it's the way the locker room smells when you're blah, 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 blah. It's like, okay, well, you can be a trainer. You can be a coach. You can be a manager. You can be around baseball in some, in some way, okay? Like, or is it, you know, the competition? Because competition, you can just parlay that and you can get into business, entrepreneurship, and there's competition there. You know, like, what is it about baseball? What is it about theater? What is it about it? And, again, using the Socratic method of getting these questions, and then you can get, get to the core of it. And then from that core, now you can build up. So you see, break it down at a young age when they're, when they're teenagers, and then you build it back up for the possibilities of all these different careers. And that process, you can always pivot because you're pivoting from this to this. My wife was an actress, but now she's in, she's in business, but all the skills she developed in theater and memorizing lines and stuff now help her in making ads and all that kind of stuff. So, and performing on camera. So it, it helps. You know, I dated a girl who came out to LA who was, wanted to be an actress, didn't become an actress, became a lawyer instead and was a great trial attorney. So, even if you don't know what you're going to be when you're young, if you know what those core those cores are, then you can pivot into a whole bunch of different career uh, options. And that's what, what most adults do is they go from one career to another to another, and they they take the tools from that one career and they put in their tool belt to bring to the next career. And I think that's that's really really helpful and useful. I think that's spot on, and I also think it's especially important. I think that's one of the things to go back to the earlier part of our conversation about the education system being especially outdated for the 21st century, we still have so many priors in our education model that assume that you're going to find one career and do it for 40 years. And that's not how the world works anymore. And so having exposing kids to that agile thinking where they're going to bounce between different things and finding the through lines between them and the underlying commonalities between them and the skills that make them good at all of these disparate things is super important. I think that's a really, I think it's a really important point that you just made. Um, I want to, this is completely unrelated, but I also want to ask you, cause you mentioned homeschool curriculum earlier. Uh, people, I obviously spent a lot of time on the internet talking about homeschooling and there are lots of people who really take issue with the idea of parents educating their own children. Um, because they're not trained and qualified as a teacher and I feel like as as a teacher, you probably have an interesting take on this. You mentioned that you're thinking about creating or working on creating homeschool curriculum. So I imagine you can't be completely anti-homeschooling. Um, what is your take on the argument that if parents haven't been to a teacher's college, they are not qualified to educate their children? It is irresponsible for them to think that they can do so. Yeah. Um, well, it's tricky. Like I have a credential in elementary ed, but I, it was like one class I just had to tack on. Um, I think it's different. Like, um, I don't, I think that there's some legitimacy to like, does a parent actually know like phonics and how like, a you know, and, and the developmental like process of like, you know, a, a six year old's brain and like, what is developmentally appropriate? Like, I think that that's really useful stuff from, from education colleges. 
It's like how the brain develops, what's educationally appropriate at six versus 10 versus 12. You know, what can they process and what can't they? And I think that, um, you know, a lot of parents don't know. That's like, all you have to do to read is just like learn how to, is just like read the pages. Maybe, but there's a lot of kids that have a whole bunch of learning differences and stuff like that. Are you aware of what those are? Um, you know, it's not just that your kid's you know, my kid just doesn't want to read, maybe might be dyslexic, might have a whole bunch of different things going on. You really don't know. And I think that teachers are trained in identifying those kinds of things. So that's why, um, like personally, like we are, our kids are in elementary school and then we're going to pull them out at sixth grade. That's the plan anyway. Um, because then it gets into like the secondary ed and that's like more my realm. And I think that a lot of the way secondary ed goes is, um, I mean, in, in STEM too, but I think a lot of it is the best way at that point is once you have the basics, then it's a lot of learning how to think. I, I do. I, th I think that that's, that's more of my, my speed. And then I think parents can do that really, really well. So again, I'm, I'm biased because this is what I'm, we're doing with my kids and I might be wrong on this one, but it, I tend to go in that direction of you know, the early stages of like how to do this kind of stuff, how to you know, read and do basic math and stuff like that. Um, is, is, you know, having uh, an educational background is useful. Uh, when it comes to like advanced math and things like that, some parents know that stuff. I don't know. I don't. Um, but again, there, you can always outsource it to people that do kind of like the education that you went through. So if my kid really wants to get into engineering, my middle kid, my six-year-old loves cars. And he wants to be a car designer or something like that. Like I can get access to that kind of stuff. So uh, that's kind of where, where I stand on it. But I know a lot of people kind of do the inverse. They, they homeschool for a while and then send their kid out to get like more socialized, uh, you know, when they're older. But I have issues about, I don't think the socialization element of high school is that good. I don't think it's like what the way, the way the world works, like ridiculing people for getting a pimple and stuff like that. Like, I don't think that's the way the world works. So like, I don't know if that's like the best socialization. I think socialization really is great when um, the homeschool kids that I talk to who spend a lot of time with adults are like, the kids are coming in, they're like, oh, I have a pimple on my head. It's like, yeah, I got pimples on my head too. Like, relax about it. It's not a big deal. Like, let's go. Let's get some work done. Like, um, I think, I don't know about, I don't know if like getting kids to like a normal, a normal high school experience is necessarily a good thing. I mean, if you really, I think we forget, you know, a lot of high school sucks for even for like, you know, the cool kids. It's, it's, it's actually not that great. Um, so that's why I'm tend to be going in the direction I'm going in. I find that fascinating because it's a your your take on this is very different from a lot of people that I talk to and and you have you have a you know a full rationalization for for the logic behind it but it's very mm -hmm. different from where most people fall in the homeschooling thing people tend to be much more well I can read so I can teach my kid how to read and I can do basic arithmetic so I can teach my kid that and then when they need to be exposed to more complex subjects that I can't teach them, then I'll send them to school. And I think that second part of the logic is broken because of my own experience where there are just so many resources on the internet. You can become an expert in anything through the internet yeah. from your couch if you're willing to put in the elbow grease. But your, your arguments for sending your kids to the early parts of school and deferring to experts on that and then pulling them out second is such an interesting paradigm flip from the normal conversations I usually have about this. Um, I did. So I had, uh, I don't know if you know, Matt Bateman, he's the, um, philosopher in residence at higher ground Montessori, which is the largest network of Montessori schools in the world. I had him on a few weeks ago and we talked a little bit about this homeschooling question too, because he's been deep, deep in the trenches of education for a really long time. And, you know, he's like building out these networks of schools. So he's 
actively thinking about the the mechanics behind educating kids at scale. And his take was more along the line. He said something very similar to you, which is that like all of this stuff is hard. It can't be downplayed that it's tough to teach kids how to read and do math. And there's a lot of detail that goes into it that is really easy to just overlook. But you don't have to go to educational college in order to learn how to do it. The education colleges do not have a monopoly on people being able to like you you can't have a monopoly on learning we think that all these colleges do but that's just that's not how information works you can't monopolize it you can't be like okay i am monopolizing this knowledge and you only can have this knowledge too if you come through our system knowledge is far too fluid and intangible for that you can't you can't confine it and own it in that way in the same way you can monopolize like all of the coal in the world and be like, well, sorry, you can only have coal if you go through us because there's literally physically no other coal anywhere. That's not how knowledge works. But so you're not limited to what, whether or not you've been to a college of education in order to be able to educate your kids. But you do have to be willing to put in the work to understand how, like you said, phonics works or how um, if your kid is struggling to read, like you have to be willing to go in and do the research to figure out, is there something actually wrong here? Are they just like a different stage in the developmental process? Maybe we'll look at the research of outcomes of kids who learn to read when they're five versus kids who learn to read when they're eight. And we see if there's like actually a problem with waiting. And if you're willing to do that work, his argument was if you're willing to do the work, a parent can, there's no difference. Yeah. In it's not like all the people who have teaching capacity are like selected off and sent to teaching college and the rest of us just don't have the teaching gene so we can't do it. But you have to be willing to put in the effort for it, which I also thought was an interesting um, and very encouraging for homeschooling parents, like an important sort of pep talk for them. But I'm, I'm curious to hear your take on that too. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, it all comes down to like, you know, I don't know. I mean, the homeschool community, which I'm just learning about now more and more. I mean, there's some level of it that, uh, wants to be involved in their child's education, right? Because they're conscious enough to do that. But I just, I, I've just seen a lot of parents and a lot of like, I do worry that they're just like, you know, read, you know, or just like they just, you know, they just phone it in, you know. I mean, that's, I mean, but a lot of just regular school teachers, especially public school teachers, I mean, I mean, parents, they just like, you've, they've outsourced the responsibility of teaching my kids. So when you do that, you welcome, I don't know, like them to do tyranny, essentially, like them to do it their way. Um, but, you know, it's just like, I don't have to worry about educating my kid at all about anything, like about sex ed or anything like, oh, cool. Then here, just you go do it. There is an element of like taking the easy route that I think a lot of parents do, because it is easy by kind of, you know, like by, by definition, it's like, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll do everything for your kid. We'll feed them. We'll, we'll teach them how to read. We'll teach them this. We'll teach them, you know, morals. We'll teach them, uh, you know, like health stuff. And then you're like, well, why is my kid eating garbage, learning terrible health? It's like, because you gave that up. You gave that up. So if you don't want to do that, you don't want to take responsibility of things, then you're going to leave it to people to do it. So I don't know. I think it really, it's really dependent on, on, on the parents. But yeah, if a parent really is like, I'm going to learn exactly why my kid is struggling with like a P being forward or backward or why sometimes it's read and sometimes it's read even though it's spelled the same way or why, you know, mnemonic has a silent P or something like that. Kids are going to ask questions. And if you don't want to just say like, because it's what it is, kid, like 
you got to learn this kind of stuff. And I think that, you know, I mean, I don't discredit my, you know, 18 years, 10,000 hours plus in the classroom. And I wouldn't want to do that for someone who's, you know, a first grade teacher, you know, a first grade teacher who's good at their job and know, and has been through this and explained, you know, that those kinds of questions over and over and over again, probably, I assume they're better at it than me. I mean, I'm not so arrogant to say like, I could just, you know, watch a YouTube video on how to teach a kid to read. And that'll, that'll, you know, be just as good as someone who's been in the classroom for, you know, two or three decades. I mean, some of these like old ladies that have been teaching kindergartners since like the Carter administration, like it's, I don't know, I feel like they probably have something right. Um, so, so I think it really depends on the, on the parent and how much they're, they're willing to like, yeah, like let's dive into, I'm going to learn how to be a really good educator, but I agree with you. You can. Like you can learn, you can learn stuff. You can learn anything online now. It's so amazing. It's such a great resource. Can you talk a little bit to the level? I don't know how much you're, you want to like publicly share what you're working on um, to the level that you're comfortable talking about it. What, what is your vision from here of where you want to go? Like you talked a little bit about, you're trying to figure out how to scale what you're doing. You're trying to figure out how to reach more kids. You talked about a homeschool curriculum. What are you working on right now? Um, thank you. Yeah. I, I, I'd love to talk about it cause I'm, I'm an open book. So I, I process everything openly with my classes, with online and everything like that. So, uh, I'm about, tw- I'm 21 or 22 lessons in of recording, uh, my 30 lessons of U S history. So it's a U.S. history curriculum cause it's the class that I did my student teaching in and that I've taught all the way up until last year. So it's a long time and I've developed it. Um, over time, I kind of know where the kids' heads are going and everything like that. And it's cut up into 20 or 30 minute chunks. So it's 30 different units. Uh, 30, yeah, no, uh, yeah, I think 30 different units, 30 different classes, maybe 15 units, something like that. Anyway. Um, and then with that, there's a whole bunch of little, you know, of like worksheets and projects, projects that I developed over the time as well. Uh, so they're like lectures uh, with warm ups and everything like that. And then there's going to be a whole bunch of, um, you know, activities that they can do and implement. And it's kind of a la carte. Uh, and then I'm working on doing some sort of personal connection, whether it's like a group, you know, once a week or something like that, where I can answer questions and do Q and a and form some more personal connections, um, as well. Uh, I have a, a critical thinking curriculum that I developed, um, through a grant from heterodox Academy that I did with another teacher named Zach Cresswell, who's a math teacher. I'm a humanities teacher. He's a math teacher in Michigan. We developed that like two years ago and uh, had it piloted by um, several classroom teachers last year. And um, that's available. It's just a whole bunch of resources, like slideshows and stuff like that, more like passive. Um, but you can, again, it's like a la carte. It's that, that, that's free. Um, uh, it's like you can just take different worksheets and stuff like that. It's a lot of like moral dilemmas and how the brain works. And, and it is like critical thinking. It can be applied. It's entitled critical thinking across the disciplines. Um, but then after that, I do want to do something with my civics class. But then after that, I think where I, um, as well as like the understanding of, of um, how to connect with teenagers, uh, it's controversial issues. It's uh, how to um, like, talk to teenagers about guns and abortion and religion and these like really complex things because I am the, you know, viewpoint diversity, critical thinking, you know, guy. So it's how to address these topics in a way that is going to really help you understand them, not pushing like you should be this way, but like understanding you know, the absolute best arguments for being pro-choice, best arguments for pro-life, the best arguments for, you know, Republicans or Democrats or whatever these controversial issues are, um, a way to help teachers, parents, 
you know, talk to their kids to really understand these issues. Cause I, I, I think that's another area where um, I use my social media account a lot for is like working through these problems. And I think that's something that uh, we, we desperately need, uh, especially if you're, if your child's going to go out into the world with all these culture wars going on and everything, like to be able to really understand it and articulate why they have their position. You know, if you want to be, I'm just to stick with that same one. If you want to be uh, pro-life, can you argue from a pro-choice standpoint as well or better than all the pro-choice people that you're talking to? Because if you can, and then you acknowledge, you say, here's why, here's, here's a great pro-choice arguments. Despite that, I, I, tend on this, I tend to lean on this side for these reasons. I think that's a better place than what we tend to have in society now, which is you don't even have the faintest clue why people really vote for Donald Trump or why people really vote for Joe Biden. You have no idea. You just hold them up, well, because they're idiots or they're immoral. They're either ignorant or they're ignorant or they're immoral. That's really the only reason why someone would think differently than me. And uh, I think a series on like a whole bunch of controversial issues is where I, 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 I'm going to be leaning into after this U.S. history one. That's amazing. And if people want to learn more about the work that you're doing, they want to find your stuff. You mentioned social media earlier. You mentioned these yeah. courses. Where can they find you? Yeah, thank you. Please. Um, uh, my social media account is my name. It's Will Roosh. It's R-E-U-S-C-H. Uh, and then I have a website, same thing, um, William Roosh. W-I-L-L-I-A-M-R-E-U-S-C-H.com. Uh, Will Roosh, I think, on YouTube and, and other places, too. And then my podcast is called Cylinder Radio. It's a viewpoint diversity podcast. So the whole idea is that a cylinder, like a cylinder, it's like, it's like a circle or it's like a rectangle, and it's actually like a complex shape. So I have on, you know, every controversial issue I've had on, like, really complex, um, you know, weird identity marker people to come on and and present their viewpoint and then i you know often bring on people from a different viewpoint and we get to like a more robust understanding which is why i think i'd be equipped to to try and um make curriculum on that as well amazing this has been such a fun conversation thank you so much for taking the time for this yeah thank you for having me on here it was great to connect with you i'm so i'm so happy that we connected same i'm i'm looking forward to future conversations as well absolutely absolutely me too All right, that's a wrap for this week. Thank you so much for being here. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple, please leave a five-star rating. Ratings are how this show gets discovered by other people and it helps me bring in better guests. And no matter where you're listening, please like and subscribe to the show to make sure you don't miss a future episode. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for being here. I'll see you next week.